0: And I want to talk to you this morning in the time we have together. I want to talk to you about what I think is a topic that might be one of the critical issues that's facing the church, facing us right here and right in your life in your congregation where you are. And the title, what I want us to look at is called The the Primacy, the, the, The Centrality of the Word of God. And I want you to put under that, the, the Bible alone is the Word of God. Not commentaries, not somebody's interpretation of the Bible, what somebody thinks about it, not even, not even the great commentaries, not, not Calvin's commentary, not Matthew Henry's commentary, none of those things, or the Word of God. The Bible alone is the Word of God. And as, as we, before we even look at that, I want us to bow our heads and pray and ask God to guide us. As we think about that, and to exalt His Word, Amen. our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank Thee for the time and the place which Thou hast provided and given for us to be able to open the Word, Lord, to look into what You would have us to, to say, to hear, to know, and to understand. Father, lead and guide us. I pray, Lord, that You would lead and guide me, and, and lead and guide everyone who is present here today, and those who may hear. Uh, listening around the world father bring us closer to thee and plant us and lord cover us closer in thy word that we would be able to see our way in the, by the light that is thy word in the dark world in which we live in christ jesus name we pray amen, amen. i'd like to uh, start off uh, a little bit here just, just a a few points Historically, when God's Word has been exalted among our people, that is when we see revival, that is when we see reformation, that is when we see the actions, when we see the Spirit of God moving. God doesn't act independently of His Word. Amen. And what do I mean by this? Well, This morning, earlier, you remember when we spoke to each other the Apostles' Creed. Uh, or sometimes we speak the Nicene Creed. And that there are others, these ancient creeds. And many conservative Christians have taken the attitude they dislike these things. Because they uh, the, 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 the attitude, oh, well, that's somehow Roman Catholic. Or that it's somehow, we don't need that. We, we just need the Bible. Well, there's an interesting historical... Uh, uh, illustration of this back in the early 20th century when liberalism when the the early forms of theological liberalism were making such inroads in, in the American churches that was one of the battle cries of the liberals do away with the creeds and back in those days the the primary argument was who is Jesus what is Jesus and there, there were all of these explanations that had come out and books written, many of them which came out of Central Europe from uh, unbelieving, uh, many of them were German peoples, uh, but unbelieving uh, philosophers and so-called Christian writers who did not believe the message of the Bible who were giving all of these different ideas of what well, well, Jesus was this, this was the life of Jesus, this was the life of Jesus. And they came out, none of these Figures they were describing were the same person. And there's a a story that was told, and it might be somewhat apocryphal, but it illustrates the point that at a, uh, I believe it was a Methodist church convention in the United States of America sometime in the early 20s. There was a uh, very well-educated, well-polished Methodist minister that was demanding that, well, we need to do away with the creeds. No creed but Christ. We, we need nothing but Jesus. And it was said that an old uh, rural Methodist preacher stood up and asked, I would like to ask, which Jesus are you talking about? Amen. That's what we're getting at. Very good. What are, which, which Jesus are we talking about? And that's, that brings us to the, this idea of the primacy of the Word of God. Because when we get away from the Bible, oh, our, our brains can conjure up all kinds of interesting things. I'd like us to, let, let's first consider... The historic confessions of Christianity, and just in in the interest of time, I want to focus on probably probably the greatest and most coherent, the Westminster Confession. The the first chapter the Confession opens itself up with uh, the title of the first chapter is Of the Holy Scripture. Many, many other confessions open up with the doctrine of God. But I think that the Westminster Divines had it right when they opened with of the Holy Scripture. It goes, where do we get our doctrine of God from? That's why we have to start with the Scripture. Amen. If we start with the idea of God and we're starting from square one, well, we can, again, we can make up all kinds of neat things. Whether or not they're true, that's a whole other question. Yeah. But if we we start with the Holy Scripture, because that is the only place from which we are receiving True knowledge of God. Uh, the second chapter of that confession is of God and the Trinity. But we had to start at the scripture in order to get there. Amen. And I, I hope to show you as this progresses how God testifies in his scripture of this truth. Uh, the, I want to read you a statement from that confession. It's actually uh, the sixth part of chapter one. I'm going to read a little excerpt of that. The whole counsel of God concerning all things. Notice those words, the whole counsel and all things necessary for his glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressly set down in the scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced. From Scripture. So the first thing they're doing is steering us. We need to we have to be in the Bible. And I believe having uh, seen this both from conservative mainstream churches and then looking at the what's called the mainline denominations and even looking at those who are in the kingdom message. When we get out of the Bible, that's the root of our problem. Getting out of the Bible and getting into other things. That's the root of our problem. Uh, another point that the, that great confession makes is in uh, that same first chapter in uh, section 9. The infallible rule of the interpretation of scripture is scripture itself. When we come to a point in the Bible where something is unclear to us. We need to be looking at other places in the scripture To try to shine a light on it we we got to be really careful well let me go over here and see what the latest book says about it because you're going to get all kind of strange things if you do that and and please don't misunderstand me i'm not denigrating all theology writers by any means i'm not denigrating the 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 writing of theological books or or tracts or anything else i'm just pointing out that we need to be careful in all things that whatsoever we read, hear, or say must be tested Amen. by the Scripture. Amen. Now, this issue has been with us, has been with the Christian church since the beginning. Uh, and and it, it has developed, I, I just want to give a, a little bit of an overview here, in the, in the uh, our world today, and in the Western world where we are, what we're dealing with essentially, we've got uh, the, the Roman church. And Romanism, they're very explicit. And this is, to, this is to their credit. They very explicitly equate the authority of the Pope with the authority of the Bible. So if, if you're a, a devout Catholic, you can, well, what does the Bible say? Well, I just need to know what the Pope says. He interprets the Bible for me. And if there's something not in the Bible, he, he can override it. Fair enough. They're very explicit about that. We don't have to worry too much about that. All right, what about Protestantism? The rallying cry of the Protestant church was, there is, there is no Pope. There's no man who is the authoritative interpreter. We need to go to the Bible. Well, as I alluded to earlier, our mainline Protestantism has become an absolute ridiculous parody of itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, they're promoting just every brand of nonsense and filth you can imagine. We don't have to spend too much time there either. Now, within Protestantism, and and, and particularly in the American context, we have a group that is known commonly as Evangelicalism. Now, it also is becoming a parody of itself. Very, very rapidly. So many of these massive organizations, I mean, that, that... Uh, They they they're drawn and they'll fill up with a number of people that can barely fit in a football stadium, and you have to ask yourself what what are these people doing? What is their reason for being in this religious gathering? Because there is no biblical information being conveyed to these people. But let's narrow this thing down even further. Then we've got what I I would say how we would define our. Belief of remnant Christianity, those who have the Word of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I, I like, and I find useful sometimes to look at the uh, surveys, questions, of, what do people believe? What is really going on in American churches? Evangelicalism, well, there was a survey that is conducted on a fairly regular basis by LifeWay Research, which used to be affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't think they technically are anymore. But in the, out here in the world, that's considered, oh, that's very conservative. Well uh, th- this year's survey that they did of self-proclaimed evangelicals, and they defined this, I think, pretty accurately. They defined it in four terms. Uh, Number one, the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. So a person who is in this movement or who says they're an evangelical believer, they would agree to that statement. Uh, The second point, it is very important for me personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. So these people say, well, they, they believe in... Giving their testimony and doing mission work. Okay. Uh, the third point, uh, Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that can remove the penalty of sin. That's, that's a very biblically accurate statement. So the, the, these folks say that they, they agree to that. And number four, only those who trust Jesus Christ alone as their Savior will receive God's gift of eternal salvation. Uh, Those sound like very reasonable, conservative points. I I don't see any real reason to disagree with any of those things. But here's what the research found. When, When they asked people, thousands filled this out. And when they asked the people who claimed to believe those things, here were some of the results they got. 73% 73% of the respondents, nearly three-quarters of the respondents, agreed with the statement, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Well, if that's true, if, and if that uh, percentage holds over, then nearly three-quarters of American evangelicals are Aryans from the ancient Aryan heresy. This is how bad the situation is in the United States. 58% of the people who said they agree with those four statements also said they agree that God accepts the worship of all religions. 56%, and this was interesting because we heard a sermon about this a few days ago. Uh, But 56% agreed that worshiping alone or just with your family is a good enough replacement for church membership. 55% agreed that the Holy Spirit was a force, but not a person. Which marks them by definition, well, then they're not Trinitarian. Who would the third person be? 55% agreed that everyone sins a little bit but most people are basically good well then what are they being saved from if they agreed with the four statements where's the, the the point i'm trying to make here and there's a few others that there's an absolute intellectual disconnect between the message of the scripture and membership in a church something is something is broken Uh, 53% of the respondents disagreed with the statement that even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. I don't know how they define small. Or, yeah, really. It, it tend, when, when, when you ask people that, it tends to go with my pet sins. Yeah. Which ones don't deserve damnation. 46%, here's another point at which we'll, we'll touch that uh, uh, issue of of church membership, 46% disagreed with the statement that every Christian has some obligation to join a local church. 44% agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Now, that's an interesting one because an Orthodox Muslim believes that. Islamics... Really, if you study what they believe, they don't mind Jesus per se. They just deny he's the son of God. So they're perfectly in line with Islam on that point. 29% agree that God learns and adapts to changes. In other words, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent. Only 43% directly disagreed with that. The rest of them said they didn't know. The only... uh, What we can gather from this, the only thing I could gather from this, and what the... um, Some of the other... uh, Some ministers that were commenting on this that apparently, in America, we've reached the point that political opinions or being substituted as some kind of a proxy for religious belief. In other words, if you're a conservative that isn't, you know, one of these complete utter maniacs out here saying that that gender and sexual identity don't exist, and saying that, you know, claiming that men are born in female bodies and vice versa, if you don't agree with that, well, you must be an evangelical Christian. That simply isn't true. There's a lot of very unsaved people that aren't absolute worldly maniacs. And we, we have to distinguish and, and differentiate between that. I say all that to say this, and if, if I'm going to have several verses of Scripture I want us to look at. But I want to start in the 8th chapter of the book of Amos. I want to read verses 11 through 14. And I think this describes where we are. We're at the same place that God warned Israel where they were going to be. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and they shall not find it. And in that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manor of Beersheba liveth. Even they shall fall and never rise up again. Those verses ought to make us stop and think, and they ought to put, put, as it said, the fear of God into us. That those who are swearing by the sin of Samaria, how many people today, how many people in our country are swearing by the sins, metaphorically, of Samaria? we got a church. We worship God. We don't believe three quarters of His book have anything to do with us. We only focus, we, we edit out the parts we don't like, but we, we believe in Jesus, sort of, as we just read. We, we, we as a people, we as a church, we're in trouble. We, need to turn, we have to turn back to our God. And this goes directly to the view of the scripture which was where we started i want you to turn over and i want I, I, the majority of our focus i want to be on in the psalms psalm 138 verse 2 i think it's very profound and the more the more i read it the more profound it becomes to me I'm just going to read that second verse. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now, what is our level of respect for the word of God? And what is God's level of respect for his word? It's a question we, do. we need to be prepared to answer. Amen. And I'm afraid that the answer today among modern people is their respect for God's word is not much at all. Not much at all. In the scripture, the Lord has testified to us repeatedly, repeatedly, about how important His word is in obeying His word. We have a, n- a number of, Lessons on this subject. First Samuel chapter 15. It ought to be a pretty familiar story. I know it was told for many years. It's part of uh, illustrations in even children's Bibles. It's a wonderful story, but it's got a lot to tell adults too. Samuel had sent Saul to go uh, to smite the Amalekites, the ancient enemies of Israel who had cruelly treated and, and killed uh, the Stragglers, as Israel's in the Exodus. But, but Saul disobeyed. I'm going to read that story. <clears throat> Starting in verse 13 Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, Saul told the prophet a bald faced lie. He was told to go there, and n- nothing gets out alive. Nothing on two legs, nothing on four legs leaves alive. Because Samuel asked him, in verse 14, Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Oh, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spare the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God. And the rest we've utterly destroyed. Now now, now Saul's going to get religious. They took the best, but he, he was just doing it because of his religious devotion. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord hath said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. The Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then did thou not obey the voice of the Lord, But did fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Saul continues to argue, to insist that he obey what he had quite blatantly disobeyed. Saul said unto Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of those things which should have been utterly destroyed. To sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And here, here's the, the crux of this. And I want us, if you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to leave with this. Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? There it is. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Amen. And that's where the church in our country and in the modern world has absolutely failed. They won't obey. They will not obey. They will not even attempt to obey. We will not have it. And it has been hidden and twisted around in reams of book. I bet if we could gather all the books, they wouldn't fit on this platform. Telling us why God didn't really say what He said. And we don't need to go, we don't need to be in the Scripture. We need to hear the latest thing that has come out of a, a, a church organization. Sam. Now, the question for us then is how, how do we know then, all right? If there's a problem, how do we know what God demands of us? And that brings us back to that point. We have the scripture. I'm going to say this. We don't need Old Testament type prophets. I am immensely wary, I'm always extremely wary of person claiming that they got a prophecy. I'm very, very wary of that. Because here's the thing, Deuteronomy, let me read it for you. Deuteronomy uh, uh, chapter 18. Let's go back into the law. What, what saith the law about prophets? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 and 22. The prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if a thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously, and thou shalt not be afraid of him. Amen. There's a difference between looking at current events, looking at economic figures, looking at military movements, whatever the subject is, and making a prediction, I think such and such might happen. That's not prophecy. We, we all have to do that. You know, a, a farmer, when he plants his uh, field or when he prepares for his harvest, he has to look at the weather and say, Looks like we're getting rain in six days, and I've got, I can get this work done in four days. I've got this time, uh, time frame to do my work in. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is making the claim, thus saith the Lord, X. And the biblical criteria is 100% accuracy 100% of the time. Always. And furthermore, it's conformity to already revealed truth. Which takes us right back to the scripture, the word of God. And why we have to know what God has said in the word. If you don't know what God said in the Bible, like apparently more than three-quarters of American self-professed Protestant evangelicals, well, you're vulnerable to all kinds of interesting things. This is how cults get started. Let's keep our fingers, though, on Psalm 138. As I said, I want to focus there. And let's just look for a few minutes at how does God want us to examine what we hear. Go with me if you would also while you're keeping your finger there and keeping your mind on Psalm 138 thirty-eight, two, That magnificent phrase, thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, we read an interesting, it's an interesting story, the, uh, Paul and Silas, the evangelist. Now, now, keep in mind, this is Paul. This is Paul the apostle. This is a man, there's, there's no man on earth exactly like this man nowadays. He had the signs of an apostle. He's writing scripture. He's speaking authoritatively. He is, in a sense, a bridge between the Old Testament prophets and the New Covenant. But uh, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, uh, he tells us here in chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. uh, This is after Paul and his uh, associate had been sent away from a, a city after an uproar had occurred. And we're told the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into a synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. So these individuals were commended in the scripture for checking the words of an apostle Amen. against the written scriptures they had, which would have been what we call the Old Testament. And this is a point of their, their uh, commendation. They even tested the words of Paul according to the scriptures. Uh, that, that readiness of mind that they had, that's what I believe God wants us to have, an open mind, eager to learn, But very careful to see that what we're learning is true in the scriptures. That's the pattern we're supposed to follow. (laughs) My my grandfather used to have a quip that he uh, would say that it's wonderful. And we should have an open mind. But not so open that your brain falls out. (laughs) (laughs) that's, That's a good way to look at that. And I might add to that, don't have it so open that people can pour garbage into it. Amen. Amen. The, the, the point that this is making is that uh, the ministers of the gospel, as well as the people in the pew, every Christian ought to be in the scripture. We've got no excuse in the modern world that there's, there's Bibles. Bibles are literally still being passed out free. They're being placed in motel rooms. The, the, the American church of all the church throughout all history has the least excuse for this. We, we can look with grace and kindness and pity at a medieval European peasant. But he didn't have the scripture. He wouldn't know how to read it if he had it. He, 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 was, a, he was being told something. He believed it. We don't have any excuse. None at all. Every Christian isn't a theologian, but every Christian needs to know his basic theology. He needs to know who his God is. He needs to know who his Savior is. He needs to know the doctrines of sin. And he needs to know the doctrines of grace. He needs to know the identity of Jesus Christ. To to fail at this point is opening up a door to some of the grossest errors and heresies. I believe the root of the church's crisis is the, our failure to preach the word and it's become to the point we don't even know what the word is. Yes, yes, amen. We don't know what the word is to, to preach it in the church in our, our world today. This mass confusion in the Christian world in my eyes has reached, it's a, it's a critical mass. Something's going to give. Let's consider for a minute, in the time we have remaining, the Scripture itself. There's approximately 50 main different divisions and versions of the Bible in America today. With, if you count all the revisions, you're in the hundreds. And these are, the, these are the main ones. There's all kinds of little obscure. I know I've seen one of the most ridiculous things I've seen. I've got a copy of it at my house. It was given to me. There are um, scriptures where they take the New Testament and attempt to, in some way, Hebrewize the New, the New Testament. was written in Greek. When we translate it into English, there's no need to try to translate it back into a a language that we don't speak anyway. It's simply you're making havoc of the information that is contained in God's word. And this this mass confusion that's driven by this uh, should cause us to ask ourselves the question, can all of these things be the word of God? Because they don't agree with each other. A lot of them contradict each other. Some of them leave out certain verses, certain words. What did? What does the scripture say in Psalm one thirty eight two? Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Playing with this is dangerous. Uh, my, my mother and I were having a conversation actually this morning. Uh, something she read online, and she uh, it was a. Picture of what's happened to our country. And it was showing a a building in New York. I don't know what building it was. Some of you may have seen the picture. And uh, this past year, they or I think it was within recent years, something to do with the the homosexual movement. They had the building completely lit in rainbow colors. And there was another picture that was taken in the early 1950s where the picture had crosses on the same building. And, and I, I'm not saying 1950s America was a, a, in any way a uh, you, you know, mighty time of evangelical faith, but that shows just how far we've fallen right. in, in, in one human lifetime, where we are now. And one of the uh, mockers and scoffers in this, this the, uh, thread that she was telling me about made made exactly this point you know mocking christians so you you people don't even know what you believe look how many bibles you got which one am i supposed to believe that's a that's a serious challenge and the church the church as an institution has just walked right into this and goes right on and, and and continues with this proliferation of we don't like what this one says or well this one's under copyright Let's make another one. Let's change it a little bit and make it say what we want it to say. It's, it's created mass confusion. Think back on that survey. Are we improving or are we degenerating? Have, have all these mass different Bible translations helped us or, or hurt us? What does the Scripture say about this? I want to read a, a couple of verses because I think that there we can find the wisdom of God's Word on this subject. 1 um, Corinthians chapter fourteen and verse thirty-three tells us, "For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints." Well, why do we have such confusion? Now, if the Scripture tells us God's not the author of confusion, and we look at professing Christianity and we see confusion, let's go back to what I said at the beginning. We ought to be able to, by good and necessary consequence, deduce something from Scripture. God isn't the author of confusion. We see mass confusion in the churches. Who's causing it? What's going on? Where, where is the faith of the believers? What's happening in our country? What's happening in our churches? I want to read you another passage from 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are going out into the world. How do we try the spirits? How did the Bereans try even the spirit of Paul? They examined the scriptures to see whether the things they were hearing were true. That's what every single one of us, not not just our ministers, not just your father... Not just your your elders. Every one of us has a responsibility to do that. Does the church have any power in this society? There's an interesting story back in the Old Testament. First Samuel again. When he went to anoint David... And he came to Bethlehem. Uh, it's in chapter sixteen, verse four. You, you can turn there if you like. I'll read it to you. Uh, Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, "Comest thou peaceably?" Can you imagine a political figure in America trembling at the coming of a minister of God? Uh, it's almost silly to think of, because I, the the the, the men who have put themselves forward as ministers in in so many of our churches that we see they're on on television, they're on the radio they're on these places they've made comical figures out of themselves. They've been all too eager to, they're speaking the party line, they're not speaking the word of God and when when they're not speaking the party line too often they're speaking nonsense because they're not in the scripture I believe we've abandoned, or at the very least, devalued the, this word, this Bible that men died over. Men were burned at the stake for this Bible, to translate, to, to put this Bible in the hands of us, that I can hold this today, that you can hold, hold a copy. At bare minimum, we've devalued it. That God Himself says in His own testimony that He's magnified above His name. To how much respect ought we to accord? the word of God in our life have we behaved in some ways like King Jehoiakim Jeremiah chapter 36 you can almost almost feel his arrogance verse 21 the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll that is the scroll that Jeremiah had written And he took it out of Elisha, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudi read it in the ears of the king, in the ears of the princes which stood beside the king. And notice, the political leaders of his country, okay, what's God saying? I want to hear this. Now the king sat in the winter house in the ninth month, and there was a fire on the hearth burning before him. And it came to pass that when Jehudi had read three or four leaves, he cut it with his penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth. We don't see this in our world in exactly this form. But our leaders, our people, they're just as arrogant. I don't care what the Bible says. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It's their attitude. And how much apparently is that the attitude of people who claim to attend the church? It's a tragedy. He cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of the servants that heard all these words. A hard heart, that the, that upon which the word of God has none effect. This is a peculiar, or oh, there is a peculiar problem. Let me bring this, this home down entire where we are. There's a peculiar problem, I think, that I see in the Israelite believer's world. We, we have very often, we, we've realized that there are falsehoods in the mainstream church. Whether it be Catholic, mainline, evangelical, whatever it was, conservative. We've realized that there are falsehoods. And we've cast that away. But so many people want to throw everything out. We've got a, a magnificent book that we hold in our hands that, the, that is the word of God that he tells us he has magnified, has been magnified above his name. That we hold this, that we can read it. We can read it every day as much time as we have. And yet people want to throw this away and we need, a, we need to get a vision, we need to hear a prophecy, we need to reinterpret something. We don't need to do any of those things. There was a statement made by, the man was actually a Catholic, but it was a true statement. G.K. Chesterton, if I'm not mistaken, uh, said that Christianity and the, the Bible has not been found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untouched. I think that's where we are in our country. The world does and will tolerate religion. You can be religious. The world world doesn't really care about that. They might make fun of you a little bit. Oh yeah, you you silly person. But They'll tolerate that all day long. What they won't tolerate is the word of God. The world won't tolerate that. And we've got in, in... Our lives and in the days ahead, we've got to look to this word. And we've got to look to our God to give us the strength and to give us the fortitude. To give us the drive and the desire to put ourselves in the word and look at his word seriously. Hardly under a, a magnifying glass and use it as a magnifying glass in our own lives. Now what do we need to put out of our life? What do we need to put in our life? And what do we, what do we need to get rid of and what do we need to acquire? Because the, and you, you'll find the world won't tolerate the clear unadulterated word of God. <clears throat> and that's why I believe that the, so many of the churches, so many of these institutions have embraced these faults or adulterated, I like that word, adulterated, translations of the Scripture, because it, let's knock the sharp edges off. No, we can't do that. We're not allowed to do that. And if you want the power of God in your life, if you want it in your family, If you want it in your church, you need to take this word that our God has said he has magnified. Uh, We're told he has magnified this word even above his mighty name. And we need to make this word a part of our life. We need to organize our life around it. In the place where we are, where God put us. The prophet Isaiah gave a, a wonderful Statement that maybe ought to be on our, we might ought to have a card, carry it with us. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. That's where we need to be standing. We've got to give heed to the word of God. We've got to be serious about it. And we've got to follow it. And that's where we will find life. For our people, for your families, and for your churches. And I pray that each one of us in the days ahead going forward. Because the days could get very trying. Because the heathen are raging. And the people are imagining vain things. And the days could get very trying. And we need to be in the word of God more than ever. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your kind attention. And I hope and pray God will bless each one of you.